When I was a kid, and this is a true story before we get to the fiction, I woke up in the middle of the night. This was always the worst thing that could happen to me, because I was scared, well, terrified really, of the dark. But it happened a lot, and always late into the night, when everyone was asleep and everything was silent. This particular time, I had to pee. Really, really had to pee. Now, I slept on the top of bunk beds I shared with my younger brother, and normally, how I got out of bed was, I would swing my legs over the side and lower myself down, using my brother's bed as the only step. I could probably count on two hands the number of times I got into or out of bed the right way with the ladder. So, I work up the courage, and this was always a lengthy process, but I work up the courage to face the dark room, and then the dark hallway, the two things that stood between me and the bathroom. I always arrived at a moment where, in my head, I understood I would never be truly unafraid and would need to just get out of bed like ripping off a band-aid. And in that moment, I sat up, made a move to swing my legs over the side of the bed, and froze. I honestly don't think I've ever been as still in my life before or since. My eyes were locked by the closet in the darkest corner of the room the corner the nightlight just somehow couldn't penetrate. In the shadow, in the darkness, a man stared back at me. At least I think it was a man. Its body was slightly twisted. It let off a faint glow, which is why it was so easy for me to see it in the dark corner. Its figure seemed to crackle like TV static. I don't know how long I stared at it or him, If you were in the room and told me it was one second, I would believe you. If you told me it was two hours, I would also believe you. I don't know why I did what I did next, but I leaned forward and looked down to my brother's bed. There sat two more figures, slightly glowing, crackling, and looking down at my brother. When I saw them, they raised their heads to look up at me. I laid back down in my bed and closed my eyes and tried to pretend everything was all right. The next thing I remember is waking up in the morning. The figures were gone, and I was safe. Welcome to Death, Dying, and Other Things, a new weird fiction podcast. On the first Thursday of every month, we're going to bring you a new set of horrifying stories to make your day just a little bit spookier. Hope you enjoy them. This month, we have two stories about intruders, in two very different senses of the word. In the first, I'm not laughing, a man hears his wife begin to laugh after she's gone to bed. And in the second, the infinite rope, a strange object appears in a city square. Death and dying are the threshold between this world and the next. The boundary between light and dark. The barrier between worlds. And that's where we're going. We're going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From MWHS, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us.
I started hearing Jennifer laughing at 10 that night, down the hall, in our bedroom. She'd gone to bed early, exhausted. A long day at work, capped by a long week at work, which capped a difficult month. She had just taken a promotion and transformed her job from mundane but undemanding to exciting but overwhelming. She was having trouble adjusting, and so was I, and now it was early on a Friday night and I was alone, sprawled on the couch, reading a novel. Must be having trouble sleeping, I thought, when the laughs kept coming. She usually did when she was overtired. She'd given up on getting to sleep, I figured, and had flipped on the television. I'd usually advise against it and encourage her to just lay with her eyes closed. She resented that sort of suggestion. She was not a child. I know. I know. Another laugh echoed from our room and down the hall. I loved when she laughed. She had one that rumbled in her stomach and burst from her mouth, an explosion, a burst of joy, infectious. A laugh from Jennifer got the whole room laughing. Tonight, her laughs were different, more like giggles, less TNT, more firecracker. She must be watching one of her favorite movies, something she'd seen before so she knew all the punchlines. The laughing continued on like that for another half hour or so. I flipped through my book. I was doing the same, reading a novel I've read before a hundred times, trying to get even the slightest bit sleepy. But I wasn't, and I wouldn't. I knew that. She was a morning person, and I was a night owl. She gave me grief every morning when I had trouble popping out of bed, just like I give her grief when she went to bed at nine on a Friday night. Every time she'd giggle, It was like a song to my eardrums, distracting me from the novel in my hand, drawing me to our room like a siren. I wanted to give her time to get to sleep, though, so I held strong. She always slept better alone. The giggles grew into laughs, first low guttural chortles, lower than I thought possible from her slight frame. Then they morphed into high-pitched squeals, unlike anything I'd heard out of her mouth before. It was like a goat's bleat, or a child's scream. It would be a lie to say that, at this point, I wasn't alarmed. Maybe they weren't laughs. Maybe she was in pain. I put my book down and got up from my place on the couch, leaning a couple of inches to the left to take a look down the hallway into our bedroom. The door was half-closed, and the hallway light was switched off. No hope for seeing what was going on all the way down there. Jennifer, I called out, but got no answer. As I got closer, I could see the TV wasn't on. There was no lamp on, either. Maybe she was reading by booklight, I thought, or watching a funny video on her phone. The laughter lasted until I was about halfway down the hall. Then it stopped. Bathed in darkness on this side of the house, it was getting hard to see, and when I finally pushed our bedroom door open, and it swung open with a long creak, there was nothing I could see. I stepped into the doorway, my eyes strained to see into the inky blackness. When they finally adjusted somewhat to the dark, I saw Jennifer laying in bed, 
blankets up to her face, eyes wide and looking right at me. I noticed the closet door was open on the other side of the room. We never left the closet door open. What's so funny in here? I asked. What are you laughing at? I'm not laughing. If you write weird and horror fiction and have a story you'd like to perform or be performed on death, dying, and other things, we'd love to hear it. Hit us up on Twitter at DeathDyingPod or send us a message through the website. We're always looking for the next terrifying tale. Up next, the story of a rope. The sky was clear on the morning the rope appeared at Twelfth and Vine at the center of the public square. The square was spacious and old as the city itself, built at the same time as City Hall, which was built at the founding of the city, which was 112 years ago last May. The square was paved with cobblestone and lined with well-groomed trees that were replaced every three years to keep them the exact size necessary for the layout of the square. The square was flanked by coffee shops and office buildings and condos, all from different decades and centuries, their styles competing and confusing the aesthetic of the communal space. The baristas didn't notice the rope when they arrived at the square and opened their stalls to brew their coffee before the sun rose. The mid-level executives didn't notice, either, when they arrived early to their offices, hoping to keep up their appearances as self-sacrificing go-getters. Nor did the clerks or city councillors or VPs or lawyers notice the rope swaying at the center of the square as they trickled in that early morning. It was an assistant, Sarah Jennings, hurrying down to fetch her boss's coffee at 8.21 in the morning that first noticed the rope. Where the average corporate city square dweller hurried from one meeting to another, unconcerned with the people or places around them, Sarah was unusually perceptive. She noticed as soon as she exited the front of her building. Tied in a noose at one end, the rope stretched up and up until it disappeared into the heavens. When people noticed Sarah peering into the sky, trying to determine what the rope was attached to or where it ended, and finding neither of those things, a crowd formed. Ten minutes later, a hundred people, give or take, had joined Sarah at the noose. Whispers grew to conversation, which grew to shouting. The police tried to move people along, but they were just as curious as anyone else. A half an hour after Sarah first noticed the noose, someone stepped forward out of the crowd. His gray suit complemented his grayer temples. His glasses reflected in the mid-morning sun. His mouth curved down at the edges, but otherwise... He was the epitome of mid-level corporate cog. When he was several feet from the crowd, everyone's shouts and conversations and whispers died down. This surprised the man. 
he shuffled to a stop and took a look backward, searching the crowd. Sean, what are you doing? Someone from the crowd shouted. The man, Sean, breathed in like he was about to say something, but then thought better of it. He turned back toward the rope, the swaying noose, and took a few more steps toward it. The crowd simmered, murmuring to themselves under their breath, whispering in each other's ears. What the fuck is that guy doing? Someone nearby whispered to Sarah out of the corner of his mouth. Shouldn't a professional come out and deal with it? Sean stopped two feet away from the noose. He reached out. The crowd collectively held its breath. Sean brushed the rope with the tips of his fingers. The rope swung back and forth several inches. He laughed to himself. He turned around to face the crowd again. Tears streamed down his face. Sarah couldn't tell if he was laughing or crying. Maybe it was both. Sarah watched him reach into his jacket pocket, pull something out, and place it on the ground. Rotating back to the rope, he followed it with his eyes from the noose in front of his face all the way up into the heavens, and he stared at the sky for what must have been, in Sarah's estimation, several minutes. In one quick motion before anyone could react, Sean had dropped his head back down, grabbed the noose, and slid it around his neck. The rope tightened with a tug and lifted Sean several feet off the ground. The crowd gasped. Sean flailed at the end of the rope and several of the police officers rushed forward. They grabbed Sean and first tried to pull him down. One of them tried to climb up and cut the rope, but the noose just pulled Sean higher with each attempt at a rescue. By the time they got a ladder over to him, and after what seemed like an eternity, he had stopped moving. The rope and Sean hung there swaying in the gentle morning breeze for a few short minutes in front of the stunned crowd. Then, like a spirit leaving this earth behind, the rope and Sean raised into the sky. Sarah heard later that the thing Sean had left on the ground was a suicide note. He had been carrying it around for days and had meant to kill himself for some time. At dinner that night, which she always ate alone in her apartment, she played the scene over and over in her head. If she hadn't stopped to gawk at the rope, the crowd wouldn't have formed. Maybe Sean would still be alive. Maybe it was her fault. She couldn't sleep late into the night. There were a few moments where she checked the time, then closed her eyes, and checked the time again to find a half an hour had passed. And maybe she slept during those small intervals. But maybe that was wishful thinking. The blackness of her bedroom took on another meaning that night. She tried to stop replaying the events in her mind, and instead, to meditate on them. It was a trick her mother taught her as a child when something was bothering her. 
Remove yourself from the thought, she'd say, and you can better process the meaning of events. She'd been playing the event over and over in her mind all day, certainly. And instead of Sean at the center of her thoughts, it was her. Every one of the hundred plus people there that day probably did the same. But now, in the blackness, in the silence, she could meditate on it. She let her eyes unfocus. The darkness of that room surrounded her hugged her close. The rope, the man, the heavens. She saw Sean, a man she didn't even know, turn blue over and over. She watched the rope sway in the gentle breeze. It hurt her, caused her physical pain to sit here and watch. Her heart turned to porcelain and shattered, shards of broken glass impaling her from the inside. She turned away from him. The crowd stood like statues, jaws slack. She hated each one of them hated their stupid faces while a man hanged himself in front of them. The bedroom's quiet darkness comforted her. It stroked her face and dried the tears that were pooling in her eye sockets. She looked back towards Sean, hanging stiff and wide-eyed, and walked forward. Close enough to touch him, close enough to smell him. He wore the same cologne her father used to wear. She listened to the rope creak. She watched Sean swing back and forth in front of her for hours. The blackness of the bedroom seeped into her skin, penetrated her being, and collected in her chest, at first just coating her lungs. It got hard to breathe. The dark tendrils curled around her heart. It ached. The darkness poured into her body, filling her chest, building the pressure until she was sure her chest would burst. She reached out, hand trembling. She brushed Sean's pallid face. Some of Sean's skin stuck to her fingers. She touched it again, skin sloughed off, sticking to her hands. She reached out with both hands and grasped Sean's face. Chunks of skin and flesh came back with her. She looked down to find her fingers covered in meat and blood and teeth. The blackness entering her body and seeking her chest found no more room there. It traveled up her throat. She tasted the darkness as it passed her tongue, thick and sweeter than she would have imagined. It poured from her mouth and onto the cobblestone in front of her. She looked up from her gore-filled hands to Sean, expecting to see his bare skull staring back at her but what she saw sent her reeling backwards. Sean's body had donned a new face, her father's, 
pale and blue as Sean's had been. Her father's body swayed in the wind. She choked and sputtered. The black sludge pouring from her mouth suffocated her. Her heel caught in the uneven cobblestone and sent her falling backwards, plummeting. For minutes, she fell backwards through clouds of dust and pollen. The last of the sludge cleared from her throat. She gasped. She smelled sunflowers. Blue and yellow strings of light swirled around her. They wrapped around her ankles, bound her wrists, choked her neck. She closed her eyes, but the blue and yellow demons forced their way under her eyelids. Her pupils shrank to pinholes when her eyelids finally gave in. It was morning. She was in bed. Another crowd had already formed when she arrived to work the next morning. She walked with extra care over the uneven cobblestone. She planned to push right through the crowd and into her building, but then she saw it. Another rope. Another noose dropped from the heavens. The police were trying to keep people away from it, trying to create some sort of order. One was driving wooden stakes in between the cobblestone and roping an area around the noose off with police tape. Others were demanding people stay back. No one wanted a repeat of the prior morning. When she finally made it up to her boss's office, the crowd had grown significantly. Word had spread outside the usuals of the square and into the surrounding parts of the city. She found her boss, a partner at one of the many law firms in their building, standing at the window, surveying the situation. I brought you a coffee, Sarah said. He was a tactless and gaudy man, but Sarah still had affinity for him. Thanks, he said. He glanced at her. I thought I told you not to wear those anymore. Sarah examined her outfit. A conservative black suit, gray blouse, red shoes. It was the red shoes. She hadn't meant to offend him. She had honestly just forgotten. I'm sorry, she said. It won't happen again. They're just distracting, you understand? Neutral colors only. Right. They watched the crowd in silence for quite some time, each sipping their coffees, each following the rope up to the heavens and back down to the crowd and then back up again. Sarah, he said, do you know what's going on? I wish I did. Do you? No. A government experiment, probably, he said, only half-joking. Maybe it's aliens. I don't think it's either of those things. What, then? It feels personal, she said. What do you mean? he asked. Like maybe God's trying to tell us something. They watched the police jockeying for position among the restless crowd, trying to keep them away from the rope and the crowd trying to do the opposite. He considered her words. What's that lady doing? he asked, pointing down behind the fracas. A woman, 
probably not much older than 30, Sarah thought, had slipped behind police and none of them had noticed. Her ragged clothes betrayed her current financial situation, and before the crowd had even started pointing at her and shouting, she had slipped the noose around her neck and was carried into the air. Sarah gasped. Her boss remained silent. They watched the lady's body, dangling on the end of that terrible, infinite rope, be raised into the sky, past the clouds, and out of sight. Nausea flowed from Sarah's stomach, up her throat, and onto her boss's floor. In the following days, the police secured the area around the rope. There would be no more public suicides in the city square if the police had anything to say about it. The rope remained steadfast in its thirst for blood, swaying in the breeze like some cosmic gallows mocking those whose daily lives crossed its path. Sarah, for her part, laid two wreaths near the quarantine zone once the crowds had stopped getting quite so big. It was a pressing question to those that existed in the city square ecosystem how long they would have to deal with or look at the rope. Or rather, how long the city council would remain inactive on the issue. What were they going to do about the macabre artifact? How long were they going to put off finding who was responsible? They stalled. For weeks. The police officer left to guard the noose that night fell asleep around 3.30 a.m. That's what a man in a blue suit told Sarah when she got to work two weeks after the rope had first appeared. Fifteen days after Sean had hanged himself, to be more specific. Sarah arrived, parked in her assigned space in the nearby lot, and found herself unable to get close to the square. The guard fell asleep and now there's a girl in there, a man in a gray suit elaborated. A girl? Sarah asked. Yeah, look, he said, pointing. Sarah craned her neck and caught a glimpse, between the police officers and the gathered denizens of the city square, a teenage girl, no more than fifteen, standing two steps to the side of the noose. She instantly, even at this distance, reminded Sarah of herself. Bright colors to distract from the permanently hunched shoulders, arms not crossed but hugged close to her body to keep her always quivering guts from falling out. The one-inch scars on Sarah's left hip fumed, scorching the skin around them. She fell to one knee in pain. Sarah groaned and glanced up to see the girl by the noose staring right at her. Dread washed over her. Sarah tried to break off eye contact, but the girl's eyes wouldn't allow Sarah's to move. In two great strides, the girl had crossed the distance between the noose and Sarah. She scowled and grasped Sarah by the hair, dragging her back to the noose. The girl threw Sarah on the ground and stood over her. What are you doing here? The girl asked Sarah. But Sarah didn't know how to answer that question. What was she doing here, after all? The girl grabbed Sarah by the hair again, lifting her to her feet. 
Sarah glanced around and pleaded with the police to do something, but they stood as statues, witnesses only. The girl shoved Sarah's head through the noose. It tightened around Sarah's neck, choked the breath out of her, and then she was lifted, high above the square, high above the city, high above her bed. She was in bed. She was in bed and awake and drenched in sweat. It drenched her clothes, drenched her sheets, drenched the mattress. Something about how real the dream seemed. She rushed to the bathroom and shoved her face in the toilet. Why Sarah left the apartment, she would never be able to tell you. But Sarah found the night guard asleep when she got to the rope and, what's more, found a teenage girl sitting under the noose. The girl reminded Sarah of herself. The girl didn't hear Sarah approaching, so she watched for a bit. Watched the girl sit cross-legged on the ground. Watched the girl run her finger over the cobblestone in front of her, drawing unseen symbols. Watched the girl look up to the noose every couple minutes, only to look back down to several papers scattered out in front of her and scribble a line or two. Finally, minutes, hours... Ages later, Sarah spoke. Hey. That's all it took to send the girl scrambling to her feet. Who are you? The girl asked. Sarah, who are you? Becky, what are you doing here? I don't know, Sarah said, being as honest as she could. I came to... What? Becky asked. You came to what? Stop you from killing yourself, I guess. Becky burst with laughter. What? Sarah asked. You think I'm going to kill myself? Becky asked. Well, why else would you be here? Sarah said. And you think if I was going to kill myself, you could stop me? Sarah thought about how to explain herself further, but then felt another question burning inside her. What are you doing here, then? Don't you wonder what this thing is? Where it goes? What's up there? Becky asked Sarah. I guess I never thought about it, Sarah said, lying. Becky reached out her hand and brushed the rope with the tip of her finger before gathering up her scattered belongings and heading off. He falls asleep pretty much every night around two, Becky said, as she was walking away. Sarah called into work the next morning. She made some excuse about a fever. She really didn't want to see the rope that day, but Becky was right. Now, she couldn't stop thinking about what was up there, at the top of that infinite rope. If there was such a thing as fate, not that Sarah thought there was, but if there was, she had decided that the rope was hers. Or rather meant for her. Or rather, she was meant for it. Or rather, she was meant to discover what the rope was. Or rather, she was meant to see what was at the top of that rope. This was important work. Life-altering work. Life-affirming work. The evidence was abundantly clear. She saw the rope first. She dreamt it back each night. 
she saw her father at the end of the rope. This was the overwhelming piece of evidence in her mind. Why else would Sean have changed into her father in her dream if that rope wasn't meant for her? Perhaps her father had even sent it down for her. Not perhaps. No, not perhaps. And her mother was there too. Sarah was suddenly sure of it. Leaving the apartment became easier with each night. She came to rely less on sleep, and somehow her boss didn't notice the dark bags forming under her eyes from the extreme lack of sleep. Each night, she moved closer to the rope, testing the waters. On the night she first touched the rope, she barely brushed it, just enough to feel the rough fibers against her soft fingertips. It sent her heart racing. Adrenaline shot through her veins. She let out short, ragged breaths to try to regain control. Within a few nights, she was putting her open palm flat on the rope. It was warmer than she expected, and within a few more nights, Sarah was running her open palm up and down the rope. A week later, and she had closed her hand around the rope. She discovered it almost pulsed with energy, some sort of heartbeat of its own. She pulled it, twisted it. It was rigid in places, like it had some sort of bone structure hidden inside, like some sort of living thing. She let the rope go, and then it called to her, rang out through her head. When she backed up instinctively, it got louder. She ducked under the police tape, and soon the rope had given up and trailed off, echoing through her mind. Her boss only noticed her change in attitude when her work became sloppy. He came to her early one morning, expressing concern. Are you not feeling well? he asked her. I feel fine, she said. You just haven't really been yourself. What do you mean? she asked innocently, but she knew just what he was talking about. She had been doing enough work at what she thought was an acceptable level so she could avoid having this conversation. She had obviously failed. You're just making small mistakes, you know, he said. Mistakes you haven't made since your first month on the job, and your mistakes make my life harder. Sarah looked up at him from her desk, bemused. She did not care one bit whether his life was made easier or harder by whatever mistakes she was making. She only came to work anymore so she could look out the window and see the rope swaying in the breeze. Sarah stopped going to work, started sleeping during the day so she could spend more time in the square at night. It may have just been her heightened senses, but she started to swear she could feel her parents when she was in the rope's presence. Sarah arrived at the square for the last time, robotically, propelled forward by a singular thought. She listened to the clack, 
clack, clack of her shoes against the cobblestone. She glanced in every dark corner of the area, trying to make sure she wasn't being spotted. She watched headlights from the nearby interstate dance across the horizon, all while slowly marching toward inevitability. When she had ducked under the police tape and came face to face with the rope, she paused to calm her racing heart. Glancing at the nearby police officer, sleeping as always, she considered what had brought her here. Sarah kept her distance from the rope initially. It terrified her this night. It called to her, repelled and enticed, like two poles of some ghastly magnet. She looked up and considered the point where the rope faded from view and into untold darkness, the limits of her imagination given a physical location. She crept forward, careful of each footstep, as if suddenly her every move could wake the guard, as if suddenly he would wake despite all evidence to the contrary, despite never having seen that person's eyes open. He may as well be dead to Sarah. But it was too much to risk now. She knew what she was going to do, what she had to do. She circled the rope, ten, twenty, thirty times. She didn't count. Each orbit brought her closer to the noose, like some doomed spacecraft on the longest trajectory toward catastrophe. She reached out, barely able to brush the rope with the tips of her fingers. She felt the rough fibers. The friction warmed her fingertips for a fraction of a second. Electricity shot through her arm, straight to her heart, and sent it racing. A few more revolutions, and she could close her fist around the thick rope, and stopped. She looked through the loop of the noose, straight through from where she was standing, the building across the square from her, and its big glass doors reflected Sarah's face back to her. Her reflection had already hung itself. A deep hunger burned inside her. A desire to see the atom split. A need to touch the end of the universe. The rope was the key. Sarah slipped the noose over her head and around her neck. It jerked immediately with a life of its own, tightening the noose. She took her last breath, and her feet left the ground. Feeling the sting of regret, she tried to cry out to the sleeping police officer only thirty yards away, but the constricting rope had other plans, cutting off Sarah's airway entirely. Colored static built on the edges of her vision, encroaching slowly into a tunnel of turbulent color. She tried to gasp, but could only thrash wildly, her toes inches from the ground. Her chest burned with an intensity she hadn't felt since she first fell in love with her college sweetheart. Ringing built in Sarah's ears until it was all she could hear. Her vision was gone. Her chest had burst open long ago, spilling her guts, spilling her heart onto the cobblestone she had walked so many times. And then she was past it.
She didn't breathe. She couldn't breathe. Her skin was cold and blue. Her limbs were rigid. She was dead or something like it. But still, she looked out across the cobblestone square that was built 112 years ago last May. She looked out at the police tape keeping the public away from this same fate Sarah had sealed for herself. She looked over at the sleeping police officer, snoring only 30 yards away. Sarah swayed in the gentle night breeze for minutes, for hours, for ages. The rope quivered and she was rising, rising up into the night sky, rising over the city with its lights and magic and indifference, rising up toward the stars, the thousands and millions and billions of stars that didn't even know she existed. She rose through darkness, through kingdoms of dust, through malevolent light, through songs sung by a thousand lost voices. She rose for an eternity, and when eternity was over, she finally found what was at the top of the rope. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The stories, both I'm Not Laughing and An Infinite Rope, were written by me too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Reoccurring Nightmares and Open Closet Doors. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a production of MWHS. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows.